Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. Producer Jenny Mae Finn is on air. That's my dog Bear sighing, possibly at the name Jenny Mae Finn. We've got a wonderful episode for you this week. It's Vandana Shiva. Vandana is an Indian scholar, food sovereignty advocate, environmental activist. Her latest book is called Oneness versus the 1% shattering illusions seeding freedom if you want more information on vandana's work and to take part in her online courses which i strongly recommend i'm going to do it myself go to navdanya.org n-a-v-d-a-n-y-a.org it, it's an amazing yes. conversation when you cried what when you cried <laughs> when you cried i didn't cry though did i well it was like a puff up eyes Puffy did eyes. they puff yeah something happened so i, I couldn't look well put you looked away yeah why did you look away? Because I thought you might have been self-conscious. <laughs> self-conscious. Would you walk by on the other side, for example, in the say the Good Samaritan? You've read that as a Catholic, have you? Yeah, probably. You've got a bad attitude. <laughs> There's a Samaritan. Yeah. He's very good. There's some other guy. Is he the guy up the tree? I don't think there's anyone up a tree, Jen. There's not anyone up a tree. In the whole Bible, I don't think. There's definitely someone up a tree. Someone's up a tree. Zachary or something, isn't it? Zachary's up a tree. I think that's got it right. I'm going to... You Google it. You've made the claim. You Google Zachary up a tree. Is that his name? You said it. (laughs) You said Zachary up a tree, Jen. I've got a bad memory. What if Andana Shiva's listening to this now? You've got a good memory with words. You've got a good memory with words. There's a wonderful conversation with me. In fact, is this the banter decanter? Because if it is, let's use our new <laughs> yeah. jingle. Banter decanter. Banter decanter. <laughs> See, there it is. Made by <laughs> Justin Hawkins. You're friends with Justin, aren't you? Yes. Does he find you... Just, uh, has he indicated that he finds the friendship challenging? No. Well, I He's a good friend. I'd have to talk to him directly, Jen, because I don't think anyone could ever enjoy your company. <laughs> not realistically, not real, not a reasonable-minded man, such mm. as I would say I am. Really? For example. Um, go on in, Zachary Avertree. The Gospel of Luke states that while Zachary, Zachariah ministered at the old... I don't know. Zachariah ministered. <laughs> <laughs> did you, what did you Google there? Zachary Bible story. Zachary Bible story. You didn't even put there, up look, a tree. so you ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree. All right, fair enough. Zachary climbed a tree. Because Jesus was coming that way. And then Jesus reached a spot and he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I remembered. I think that might be the fig tree that our Lord cursed, wasn't it? No. He does something weird to a fig tree. <laughs> he climbed up it. I, oh, he couldn't see Jesus because he was short, so he ran to the fig tree. <laughs> this is a story about why did that hit? Why did that land with you? You've not heard of the Good Samaritan, <laughs> one of the great Bible stories, one of the classics. That's almost an independent. Like that could be, that could be in a car. Yeah, you could have that in a cartoon on its own. The Good Samaritan. Yeah. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Maybe I read that one. When I was a kid. Or what, Zachary up a tree? A man was short, he went up a tree to see Jesus. Yeah, that's what that's Jesus what came resonated. And found him. Yeah. Good old Jesus. <laughs> but I feel like he cursed the. Uh, no, he didn't curse a, free, a fig tree. God, our Lord done some crazy stuff, you know. He did cast out. He didn't out. curse things. <laughs> I think he said made it barren. Or is that, are you sure it's that tree? I can't remember. He's done something to <laughs> Isn't that like Moses' tree or something? It'd be, if there's a theologian, no, Moses, that's a burning bush. Look, 
any theologians listening to this, students of Christianity <laughs> and the Gospels, what are they going to make of this chatter? I hope Van Dana Shiva is not sat around the wireless in Mumbai or Delhi or wherever she lives listening to this. She probably wouldn't, would she? She won't be. She's too advanced to care. She just, she, she looked, frankly, she like she couldn't get off the podcast quick enough to go and meet. She was going to eat with her family, wasn't she? I found it to be an exchange, well, not an exchange, uh, a great teaching. I was, I felt that she was a really beautiful and powerful person. I, I feel like I might devote some of my time to ensuring that lots of people get to hear Vandana Shiva. I know she's already very popular and successful, but I'd like to plant her on stages, as it were and go, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because she certainly don't hold back in coating off Bill Gates, for example, does she? No, she likes... She give him a right digging it, yeah. out. Yeah, she's right. She's right. You can't argue with her. And then why would you want to? Okay, but now, first, before Vandana Shiva, I've got a very special, sexy announcement. I've got a brand new weekly meditation podcast coming out only on Luminary. We're excited about this. Not that excited because we meditate and we realise there's no point in destabilising yourself through excitement. That you, What you want, in fact, is serenity and connection. But that aside, I'm excited. It's called Above the Noise. In the podcast above the noise, I'll provide you with weekly guidey, not guidey, <laughs> weekly guidey <laughs> meditations. The first episode will be released Wednesday, the twenty-first of I, April, and there'll be. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm stammering <laughs> over my words. Look, I did. Uh, we've recorded some of these meditations. I've taken inspiration from the absolute best. Tichnat Hun, uh, Ram Das. Like I, I've just been immersing myself in the world of guided meditation. I'm meditating myself all the time. It changes you. Now, if you're a beginner to meditation, because look, on this podcast, let's face it, we talk about the political dimension. And this, this episode with Vandana Shiva is fantastic because it's a blend of both. It's talking about like the politics, but also the spirituality, that there's good politics comes from good spirituality. If you're connected, if you're serene, you will behave correctly. You want power to be organized uh, judiciously, fairly. But if you're not spiritually connected, you, it means you're vulnerable to external stimulants the whole time. You can get dragged around by other people's opinions and your own desires. It's crazy. So this, but you need a spiritual component to your life. And this is an entry. I'll call this a gateway drug to the world of transcendence. Not a drug, though. Drugs are bad. Above the noise. They're, I, I'm in a totally, my mood's different, isn't it, Jen? We make them here, don't we? Yeah. How's my mood? Quiet. Doing, that's not a mood. <laughs> <laughs> Solemn. <laughs> Solemn? Yeah. Quiet, solemn. <laughs> so if you want a reflective. quiet... What? Reflective. Quiet, solemn, reflective meditation with a quiet, solemn, reflective man. They're beautiful. <laughs> I mean, why don't we play a clip? We Do we play a clip? I don't think trailers? we can this week. It's, We're not going to play... The trailer. The trailer. <laughs> it's going to be embedded next, next week. It's going to be embedded next week. But they week. can listen to it now. You can listen to it now. Luminary. How? Go to Luminary right now listen to the trailer. Well, listen to this because this Vandana Shiva episode is amazing. <laughs> Okay, now listen. So, right, you've gone, to, hopefully, you've got the important inf information, navdanya.org for Vandana Shiva's work. Our new podcast, a meditation podcast. That means if you are a subscriber, and you obviously are because you're listening to this, you're getting a whole new podcast with me every week. You can go on a journey of meditation. I want your feedback. I want to know if there's things I can improve, if there's things that I can do to make this experience better for you. So let me know, okay? All right, love you. Now, we're going to do Vandana Shiva chat in a minute. I've already done it. Hold on. We've we done banter decanter. We did, didn't we? Because we spoke about the tree. Right, that was banter. And then you said Justin couldn't be friends with me. It was a mistake if he is. Now, now time. Don't blink that slowly. <laughs> Speed up your blinks. Who blinks at that pace? 
pretty sure it was blinking. Well, what Maybe else? Maybe I was looking down. <laughs> it looked like a long, long blink. That wouldn't be a blink, though, would it? What is that then? <laughs> Just a look. Well, you think after a certain amount of time, it's disqualified from a blink. Yeah, you blinked at me at a meeting. That was a cat blink. Mm. Cats do blink <laughs> at each other because my cats had kittens, beetle, six kittens. One a little bit ginger, like its presumed father. The rest of them very Bengal-looking, like her own heritage. And one, he is risen, my cat Moz, the exact markings, born again. Unbelievable. And when was it born? Easter. Cat Jesus. Feline Christ. What? Feline Christ. What is your problem now? You've already proven you know nothing about the Bible, Zachary, the upper the tree. I know the underground stories. What? <laughs> I know the underground stories. Don't try, you just oh, know yeah. the mainstream stuff. <laughs> oh, I like indie Bible. I like so you, man. You like all the main stories. Yeah. Jesus, Moses, Isaac. I like people <laughs> ain't even you ain't even heard of. Exactly. Benji, <laughs> Captain Mousefoot. Captain Mousefoot. He was one of the best guys out of the Bible. What he went through. <laughs> there ain't actually Captain Mousefoot in there, Jen. That was a trick. <laughs> no. Right. Okay. What kind of Catholic are you? What did your parents? What did your parents do? What did Mister and Missus Mayfin do? They were about religion teachers. <laughs> <sighs> it beggars belief, Jen, that Mister and Missus Mayfin, two of the village of Dublin's best religion teachers have turned out such dross <laughs> in their youngest child religious education all right should we have some comments from the james nestor episode before getting into vandana shiva now time for comments whoa where the hell's that woman i'm into steph hoy where's steph hoy has gone you've lost that one listener you did i because you complained <laughs> <laughs> Get her back. I miss her. I want one Steph Hoy comment oh, no. a week. Whoa, yeah, 07. And I think I've seen that before as well. You're, you're selecting from a small... <laughs> your, your selection pool's like the Royal Family's selection pool. You've only got about 12 chromosomes in your comments box. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right. So, whoa, yeah, 07. The way we... And this is a response to the brilliant James Nestor podcast, brilliant moving podcast about respiration, etc. The way we breathe is so important. I think breathing should be taught in school. It would help so many children with anxiety, etc. Of course it should. And in fact, the transcendental meditation people, like the David Lynch Foundation people, they're teaching meditation. And meditation and breath are inseparable, even if it's not Vipassana breath. You know, in the case of Tim, it is mantra meditation. Breath is still, you know, it's huge part of meditation. Desiree Gullen, so true. We are drowning in processed environments, food and habit. The more we breathe, the more awareness we have to be able to make mindful choices. Yeah, you're right, Desiree Gullen. Rubs finds. I'm list just listening now. I feel like I heard a, f I heard a fart. <laughs> what does that mean? Not now. I'm not talking about now, Jen. I'm talking about when I was watching back the video we did on COVID passports on YouTube, on the YouTube So that was channel. you? think yes you'd assume so but the thing was it was in the clip you know we put up a clip oh. there's a clip of the news oh. now oh. is it possible the mic was open you just hear no your uh, mic wouldn't have been it's there. at 13 it's around 13 minutes 25 this seconds this is a weird segue where did this come from <laughs> around 30 minutes 25 seconds to 27 seconds so i've read the comments of the covid oh. passport video you hear it like that a bit like the crow fart of the branding so what do you think about that you'll have to investigate it because it's weird that Ask it's Gareth. Not... Yeah. Right. He has the timeline. Yeah, we'll work out what it is. 
Rubs finds, I'm just listening now. I'm cracking up at you and Jenny's bants. I really think you guys should do a whole show together. Maybe around the hermit crab and the toucan. Although, perhaps it would be kinder if Jenny May Finn were admitted into a psychiatric hospital where her <laughs> requirements could be handled professionally. <laughs> You're clearly at breaking point, Russell. Stretch to your limits dealing with this severely ill woman. You have my sympathy as someone who's been around men. This is still the message, Jen. At what point do you think that it ended? As soon as he said nice, stop saying nice things. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to shout-outs from Sky. Russell, I find your sh- shout-outs. Listen to shout-outs. Listen to shout-outs. <laughs> Haven't we got a new jingle coming, Jenny? You need to sing it. What's the new one going to be? It's on your piece of paper. Three minutes, we're doing Edward Snowden. We're about to do it. Edward Snowden's coming up. Okay. But you have to sing. Thank you. Right, this is going to be our new jingle. Don't laugh, Jen. This is going to be our new jingle to end the uh, podcast, okay? And it's going to be good. But it hasn't been made yet. You're hearing me. And it won't be in this podcast. It'll be in the Jordan Peterson podcast. He's going to hate that. So it's Jordan Peterson (laughs) next week. Edward Snowden the week after that. You've got to stay with this podcast. It's great stuff. So now this is what this is me doing live, the record for it. And then you Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. I want to know. I want it to be more like Michael Jackson. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Goodbye. Doesn't that sound like Michael Jackson? Yeah. Well, I thought it did sound like okay. Michael Jackson. Well, there'll be some falsetto harmony with it. Well, because so. it's Justin Hawkins is going to do it. Yeah. Or I could go, thank you, yeah, for listening, yeah, mm, for under the skin, oh, ho, ho, goodbye. No, I prefer the falsetto. Let's go with the Michael Jackson. It's better, won't it? Why are you looking at me like that? Your eyes went cloudy. <laughs> We've got one minute till Snowden. Shit, one minute to Snowden. Maybe they scrapped out this in the shadows a decade long. You're right. Okay, let's get into Vandana Shiva. She's a great teacher. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Vandana Shiva, may we begin? Yes, we can. Yes. I'm very grateful to you for joining me. It feels to me that we are, well, not least because of some of the things I've watched you say, that we are perhaps in at a pivotal historical moment advancing into a new and potentially, well, I suppose literally irreversible state because things aren't reversible anyway. But uh, is this a a seminal moment for not only only ecologically, but perhaps in terms of human rights and the way that power is conducted, democracy, um, our ability to control our own lives, sovereignty, personal and national? What what is happening with with all? We seem like we are at the nexus of many points of power, tech power, it, prohibition of certain forms of protest. I'd really love to you to start opening up these ideas for us. Um, 
so we aren't just at a new historic moment. We are at a cusp of an evolutionary moment that if we don't get it right, we can with a large potential for certainty, see the extinction of our species as a human species biologically by destroying the conditions of our lives on this planet. After all, we are very recent arrivals. You know, the living planet has been around, evolution has been around 4 billion years. We are just entrance 200,000 years ago. And among the oldest of those who learned how to cultivate the land are those who were called bush people. They weren't bush people. They were the best gardeners of the world, the Aboriginal people of Australia, 60,000 years. What we are at the cusp of is basically a piling up of all the abuses and violence of colonialism, because as I've written in my book, Oneness Versus One Percent, and I've talked about uh, in many interviews, is basically it's a new Colombian moment, yeah? Um, and, um, and our dear billionaires are the new Columbuses. And for some reason, they've chosen Bill Gates to be the face of this new colonization. And just as at that time of colonization, the destruction of our lives, our cultures, our freedoms, our identities, our land was defined as a civilizing mission of the barbarians. There's a new barbarian definition being put on ordinary human beings so that the new civilizing mission of takeover can happen. Then you've got all the damages of the post-colonial period where just when we got free, the IMF and the World Bank were put in place to recolonize us and get us into debt. And I have lived through this whole period of colonization of my country, including the imposition of the chemical agriculture in the name of the so-called green revolution, not green, not revolutionary. And then you get the free trade globalization moment of the nineties put into law with the World Trade Organization agreement, which gave rise to the Monsantos of the world, gave rise to the Microsofts of the world, in terms of the big powers they are. And at the heart of it was a new regime of property. Property, as they say, in products of the mind, but I call it property in theft of the products of other people's minds. Um, software, the patenting, we know that was the case. Microsoft seeds everything. What has happened in each of these separate sectors, people have deepened their struggles for justice, decolonization. And look at the movement against Monsanto, it was so strong. Millions marched against Monsanto that Monsanto was forced to disappear. But it was disappeared as Monsanto became Bayer. But now Bayer has emerged in this new congruence of three totally dictatorial, unaccountable powers that whose only intention is how to free themselves of accountability and democratic control. The convergence we are witnessing is a convergence of the, of the babies of evolution, but the giants of technology, the technology barons, the digital barons, 
I mean, how is it just in the last 25 years? Out of the blue, the Googles get so big, the Amazons get so big, the Microsofts get so big, the Facebooks become so rich. That system of wealth creation, you just have to go back to the colonial period. How did the British Empire get so rich? $45 trillion transferred from my country, the richest at that time, left in deep poverty. So you've got the IT sector, now the digital barons, You've got the biotech sector, which if you go back to their history, is the IG Farben of Hitler. Yeah, the, the chemical industry has its root in Hitler's Germany. And they were, they were a cartel called IG Farben and they went to trial in Nuremberg. We forget that human rights began after the Nuremberg trials. So you've got those chemical criminals, you've got the pirates, of software and information and data. And then the whole new formation of, of capital, which they call FinTech, they, you know, everything they want to put into a new system of civilizing is put a tech behind it. So you, <laughs> if you remember 2008, we had the Wall Street collapse because of the subprime crisis. And the billionaires then realized Wall Street was too insecure. So they started to create their own investment funds and their own equity funds, which they own. And leading them are the Black Rocks, leading them are the vanguards. And I've written about this in my book, One is Worth 1%. So the financial giants, the chemical giants who are the controllers of agriculture and the digital giants have become one power, destroying democracy, trying to define life out of the equation in every field. You know, I work on seeds. And I'm just writing an essay which I'll be so happy to send you, Russell, to reclaim the seed. I'll be send, giving a call on the 26th of April, which was the day when Iraq was invaded and the seed bank was appropriated. And Bremer said, it's illegal for farmers to save seed, order 81. And we said seeds will be free. So ban democracy, ban life, ban humanity, that's the agenda, nothing less than that. And when I say this, I'm talking about texts I read, about patterns I read. It is not a conjecture. It is their stated intention. Please will someone give me a hair tie because I cannot conduct this interview with a hat on with this great woman. It is disrespectful. It must be immediately removed. Now, firstly, Vanda, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, well, it seems to me that what you're describing uh, is a series of um, mutations, the, the mutation of uh, co colonization into sort of forces of bureaucratic colonization through the IMF and various other uh, systems of global dominance and also the mutation of Monsanto into another entity, the mutation of Wall Street into another entity so that power itself can be sustained. And, and each one of these advances, evolutions and mutations is to further advantage and benefit the already powerful uh, and continually dispossess uh, in, in a manner that, yes, that is, I, I see from your explanation, directly analogous to the um, creation of wealth through colonization. I see, too, um, that it is a, a, a simple equation that wealth cannot be created on that scale 
without deficit from elsewhere. So it's a form of, yes, what we had, I suppose, for colonization was sort of uh, the pageantry of piracy. And now we have the technocracy of uh, piracy sort of concealed behind materialist uh, rationalism, concealed behind uh, apparent benevolence for all. When you describe a problem of that um, scale, uh, Vandana, uh, it seems to me that the nothing less than a, a sort of globalized re- transnational resistance could be of effective. Well, I, I think what we need is a combination of both global solidarity rising with deep consciousness and overcoming all the divisions that have been constructed. You know, the first corporation of the world was East India Company. And it was created by the name, the name tells you it was created to rule India and everywhere else where there was money and wealth and spices and textiles. And in 1857, our people, a peasant movement like the peasant movement organized today, they threw the East India Company out. We call it the first freedom movement in British history, it's called the Sepoy Mutiny, as if a few Sepoys organized. No, all of India organized. If you see the map at that time of India and the, and the rebellion, it, it absolutely crosses the whole empire. And the East India Company disappeared after that. So what did the British do? The first thing they did was the decade after that, the crown took over, killed 10 million people for wanting freedom. That was our crime. And worse, they institutionalized divide and rule as a policy. The fact that our lovely land was split first into Pakistan and India, and then later into Bangladesh, Pakistan and India. And even the problems of Burma today, the Rohingya, look at problems anywhere, they are of that period. So divide and rule was a very important part of the policy of the empire. And it is a very important part of the policy of this empire. So we have to, of course, overcome division. And that is the global solidarity. But what I learned from our freedom struggle, and particularly from Gandhi, you know, 87, I'm at a meeting where the big chemical giants are now talking about owning seeds and unleashing GMOs in order to take patents on seed. And I said, but you don't invent the seed and a patent is for an invention. And so I decided I'm going to save seeds. That's why I started Navdani and the movement for seed saving. And I said, how do you fight this? Exactly the question we face today. And on the flight back from Geneva, I kept thinking, I said, it was a cotton empire. The 85% of the territories of the world were controlled by one island nation. And then Gandhi took out a spinning wheel and said, we can defeat this empire by spinning our own cloth. That is where we begin with our freedom. So we need to kind of squeeze them. We need to squeeze this new techno empire from the top through a global solidarity of one humanity on one planet. And from every place where we are, every place where we are, saving seeds and saying, no, you cannot now take digital genome sequences and make them the new maps like the colonizer sat with paper and said here's a map and they said we came with a sword in one hand 
and a yardstick in the other to make maps to colonize the land. The new maps are digital maps of life on earth. And if you look at three simple things these days, Bill Gates and his digitalization of life, the great reset not to be ignored. And sadly, I've dedicated my life from 90s, to, from, the, from 87 to saving seeds and work for biodiversity. And now there's a whole new economics of biodiversity, which is all about financializing biodiversity and putting biodiversity on portfolios of asset managers. And they haven't got it yet. The greed and chasing money has destroyed this planet. It created colonialism and they are putting it as the savior. So we have to be present everywhere to define, protect our seeds, to defend our food. You know, food will be the next colonization with fake food. To defend our minds from this new piracy of our brains, which is what the Facebooks and all the digital giants do. They're just stealing our data. They call it data but it's really stealing our minds and our relationships. So we've got to both be civil disobedient for society and the planet, wherever we are in whatever way we can, while standing together as one humanity with one home, this beautiful earth. Thank you. Um, when uh, uh, Gandhi's movement of disobedience and resistance was framed within a recognizable paradigm of anti-colonization and national independence. Um, you have described how the subsequent legislature created polarity, division and conflict that still affects people to this day. How do you imagine, because I'm aware that the second part of your answer was a deepening of consciousness, and of course, I'm aware of uh, that Gandhi's philosophies were underwritten by uh, a deep religious practice. How do you see the political activism required to resist these forces that, as you say, are mining our data, controlling and directing our attention, which for all we know may be the essence of all being? How do we deploy these principles in a new paradigm that is transcendent of the ideas of nationalism. When Gandhi said um, that there's no point in throwing off the British only to replicate the systems that they imposed on us, and my understanding, forgive me if I'm wrong, is that he said that India is a nation of 70,000 villages, each should be independent, trading only when necessary. It seemed to me that he was talking about something beyond socialism, closer to sort of syndicalism, anarchism, uh, do you think these ideas, also he talked about the our fetishization of objects, gadgetry and technology. How do you think these ideas of spiritual awakening and perhaps emergent or at least heavily revised political ideas must come into play? Yeah, so, I th you know, Gandhi was very, very against the idea of a nation, you know as a defining sense of who we are. Tagore was very, very critical of it. What, what he wanted was economic freedom, yeah? But that is the second part of Gandhi's life. The first part of Gandhi's fight for freedom was in South Africa, which was a combination. You know, he wasn't defending anything there except the unequal treatment 
on the basis of racial discrimination, beginning first with the Indians, where a law, Indian Act was put in place in 16, 1906. And then he started with the Indians, the civil disobedience. Indians weren't, were told they couldn't practice law, they couldn't do business, their, uh, uh, you know, the indentured labor, because this was after slavery, the indentured labor couldn't really be truly free after the five years. So the first Satyagraha Gandhi did was against the Indian Act in South Africa, against the regime there, the British Empire there. And they had to withdraw that act, but it took him and the Indian community five years. And he named it Satyagra in South Africa. Satya, truth. Agra, the force of truth. And when he, later he was asked, how did you invent it? He was humble enough to say, I didn't invent it. I just studied closely how India had stayed democratic over centuries. That whenever the rulers were abusive, they just said, we will not cooperate. The British tried to tax the houses in Banaras and all the citizens just left the city. They could not tax. So the non-cooperation, the British tried to tax salt and Gandhi walked to the beach, picked up the salt and said, nature gives it for free. We need it for our survival. We will continue to make salt. We will not obey your laws. It's called the salt satyagraha. Became a very big issue. The indigo satyagraha, we will not brew indigo which is literally wrapped in the blood of our people, we would rather go to jail. And that's his first return to India. So I, what I have learned both from our freedom movement, Gandhi's practice and my own life of 50 years now, beginning with a beautiful movement, a Gandhian movement called Chipko, where my sisters in the mountains came out to hug the trees to say, you cannot log these trees. They're causing landslides. They're making us walk miles for water. The first is truth for sure. But truth not as an abstract category of Cartesian study, but a lived experience of your relationships, the right relationships in the right duty. And that's why it's an ethical concept. Truth is not purely a cutting up of reality into pieces and say, ah, oh, I discovered this. But it is about relationships in a living world. The second, which is the point you raised, Swaraj. He wasn't for a nation state. In fact, he wanted the big centralized bureaucracy of, of the British to get out of people's lives so that we could govern ourselves the way we used to govern. I'm just writing a new essay and I'll be happy to send this to you too, Russell. You might know that Bill Gates has become the biggest landlord in America. So I went back to understand the whole issue of landlordism, you know, and private property in land. Now, India, we had no private property in land. There was a commons of the land and the village community decided how the land use would happen and the use rights, which are different from property rights. The use rights were hereditary, but if you use the land and took care of it, and your father had used that land, then you, uh, and the village community made that decision. But this was the same as in England at the time of the enclosures. The commons were governed by the community. And there was, the Lord did not have anything to do with the decision about how the land would be used. The enclosures of the commons was the privatization of land. It took two centuries to privatize land in England. 
I, I think they brought the settlement records, the privatization, the landlordism, but I don't think they've taken away the soul of the Indian peasants, which is why they're still on the streets fighting the longest struggle, saying we are fighting with the soul and the soil of India. So bringing democracy back to participation, and you cannot participate except at the local level, where you know face to face, and that the last person has an equal power. That's what a commons means. A commons overcomes all inequality. The poorest person, the most marginalized has as much power. And therefore one person saying this commons can't be enclosed used to hold it back and they had to change the laws. And finally, I think base, you know, when, when I read, I mean, thank goodness I trained in physics and quantum theory, because when I read as an old woman, the rubbish we are taught as economics, the rubbish that Locke said. Locke said, how is property created? Because he was justifying the enclosures of the commons, but talking as if he's talking about the American Native American, you know, in indigenous people. He's saying property is created by the mixing of labor with nature, but it is not the labor of the person who works the land. And it's not the labor of the animal who plows the land. It's the spiritual labor of the owner of capital who owns the serf and who owns the animal. Now they cooked up a category called spiritual labor <laughs> as a power of capital so they could appropriate the creativity of the land and the earth and appropriate the creativity of the peasant and the worker and treat it as wealth creation. And they, they tried to hijack spirituality too, which is exactly what is happening. I mean, if you read the rubbish again coming out of Silicon Valley, where they're talking about, we will be elevated by becoming a, an appendage to the machine. Yeah, that we are unimproved beings. And this whole idea of transhumanism, as if we can't have transcendentalism connected to a beautiful universe. Yeah, they are trying to give the machines a new spirituality like Locke tried to give capital spirituality. And I think these confusions that are deliberately created can only be overcome by the practice of true spirituality, the true power within and the true power of interconnectedness. Cool, thanks. Um, to a few of your points, I liked what you, when you were talking about truth, Vandana, um, and you said that truth is not sort of about the creation of taxonomies and dissection, but rather about authenticity and integrity. It reminded me of something that um, Carlo Ravelli said about sort of in the quantum world, nothing can be really said to exist other than in a re relational sense through relationship, even at the most sort of basic components of what we might refer to as the f physical world. I wonder, I wonder if an a fundamental obstacle to meaningful opposition to the dominant ideas of our time might have been midwifed by the castrating influence of secularism, our inability in a materialist and rationalist mindset to even conceive of a transcendent or, or of a benevolent transcendent reality I, I accept that the state is a transcendent reality i accept that capitalism is a transcendent reality that requires faith how are we to unlock 
this force, both individually and communally, that I feel may be required and I've, I recognise that your country is a very different one from mine in some senses and it feels to me here that we live in a a reality very much confined by rationalism. I wonder what there is in uh, your understanding of philosophy that we can mobilise in a post-secular culture so that people feel that there is some meaning beyond flat rationalism and self-interest i.e. don't destroy the planet it's what we live on we require these you know even the word resources suggests a utility as the primary function of independent nature what is it what is it that we need to reawaken well first let me just say you know how words are made to change meaning um, the word, I did an essay for a beautiful book called The Development Dictionary. Ivan Illich and thinkers of that time, we got together and we said, where did this word development become economic when it is supposed to be about biology or the evolution, the self-organized evolution of the seed into a plant, a, a embryo into an adult. And uh, so this essay I wrote was resources, which used to mean resurgence that which arises from itself without external control. Mm. So a spring that is constantly renewed is a resource, but it was redefined with the fossil fuel industrial capitalism as raw material. So the redefinition of a resource from a living, renewable, self-organized system to an exploitative raw material is part of this period of colonization and part of the period of the new colonization um, is um, increasingly, for example, for the seed, when they just steal it and just do a genome map and take a genomic sequence, like the map making of the colonizers, the word that's being floated is dematerialization. But the seed doesn't disappear. The seed is very much there and they still will have to plant the seed. They'll still have to have the seed grow into a plant. Uh, but dematerialization is part of that mystification. So I think part of it is we have to constantly be very deeply co conscious of how meanings, how words have been emptied of meanings or given the opposite meaning, you know, Aurelian doublespeak. We have just 400 years of the twisting of our mind, you know, the Baconian thinking that there's some people, superhumans, called experts. And when I think of England, you know, Royal Society created to implement his idea of the masculine birth of time and to desacralize nature and, and boil rights that we have to get the Native Americans rid of the idea that nature is sacred because it's becoming an impediment in our great empire over lesser creatures, which included not just non-humans, but all humans who weren't the white colonizer. So we have to sacralize everything, yeah? And, and anything that desacralizes, in my view, is not actually secular, because in my land, seculum purely means equal respect for all faith. Your Islamic faith, your Christian faith, your Jain faith, your Buddhist faith, your Sikh faith, any, or not to have faith at all. That too gets equal respect. And all of the indigenous 
hundreds of tribal religions. One place it's this tree, another place it's this rock. And I just feel so proud to be part of a civilization where we live in such a sacred earth. The second thing is how Terra Madri, our lovely mother earth, was turned into Terra Nullius, the empty earth. And this idea of empty is a very deep spiritual idea. You know, the idea of Shunya, that your ego doesn't matter, but it's being turned into a juridical idea of colonization. So empty land then, I have fought with Monsanto in the courts of India where they say, oh, but the seed is empty. It's what we put into it that makes it work. I say, oh, Mr. Monsanto, before you came on this planet, there were no seeds. That's stopped. Now they're talking about our brains being empty till we get all the propaganda machine and the hate machine and the algorithms feeding us. Yeah, we are an empty brain. And this, these ideas of emptiness on the wrong kind are creating a false faith, treating religion, treating money-making as a religion and treating technocratic tools of power and extraction as a new religion. So we've got to bring faith back in its, all its diversity. We have to bring the sacred back in all its amazing power because when you live on a sacred earth, your, your idea totally changes, you know? Over these 50 years, I just said, what is it the little service I can do, Mother Earth? And I find the little piece I can do and amazing things happen. Whereas when you come with the colonizing idea, even on many of our environmental friends have that colonizing idea, or how can I fix the earth? Or how can I fix the farmers? How can I do farming without farmers? And how can I go one step beyond have food without farms, you know? This is colonization because it is saying, I'm not part of the earth. I'm not part, I'm not the little chain, you know, in the great chain of being. I'm not the one little link, but rather I'm above it. I, even environmentally, I'm the master. And Russell, I think you'll have to do a lot of work in the next few years because they're going to do a lot of colonization in the name of sustainability. Just by chance, I was reading the rubbish in Bill Gates' new book. <laughs> I, I normally don't read rubbish, but when they want to be rulers through rubbish, I read it. And it's lovely because he says, the greenhouse gases from factory farms are not because of factory farms and putting animals in prisons, but it's because the cows were the problem, they had four stomachs. And the four stomachs make them emethnethethnethen. No, you walk behind a good cow on a grazing pasture, she's not stinking goes even further to colonization. He has put the Indian plow that has existed for 10,000 years and says, this primitive technology must go. I call this as the future technology of a partnership between our bodies, the body of the earth and the body of the animals, realizing that we are not masters, but we are there to serve through what Gandhi called bread labor the labor of our body in the service of the earth, in the service of community. So we are for sure at an epic moment where everything wrong is being given a new life, just at the time where the world was waking up and say, oh, you know, this dissection doesn't work, lack of faith doesn't work, desacralization doesn't work. That's precisely when everything is being crushed again. And I think this is happening, Russell, because of us arrogance that we have created 
created such immunity for ourselves. We've destroyed every international law. We've destroyed all democracy. We have locked people into fear. We, no one can hold us to account. I mean, look at the debate right now on the GMO question in Europe, where we created laws on GMO regulation and they want to knock it down and Bill Gates again is financing the lobbies for that deregulation. So there is an arrogance that I can't be touched. And, you know, the British Empire had that arrogance. The sun never sets on the British Empire and it's it. Mm. I think if we, if we realize that we live in a power, powerful world full of energy, and that energy is a creative energy of the universe, and our power is the spiritual power of aligning ourselves, which we call Rita and the right action, you know, that's what Dharma is, aligning yourself with that power, then we are very powerful. And these people who think they are beyond all accountability can be brought to account. We just have to ensure that none of us allow our ego to overtake us. None of us allow hate and division to become the way we start to think. And third, none of us ever give up the power we have. We are powerful beings in a powerful world. I like the thing you said about um the sort of the uh, the arrogance you know the um uh, of the the, the uh, colonial arrogance and just the perhaps unconscious phrasing of the sun never setting on the british empire and the indication the syntactic indication of an unawareness of shadow unawareness of shadow unawareness of inhered darkness i i wondered too uh, Vandana, if um, you know, when you're saying that thing about the unaccountability of Bill Gates and how that kind of um, mimics this kind of monotheistic, authoritative deity, a kind of a deity that asserts power and dominion, how this motif is recurrent historically, I I wonder if in a uh, a with a, a, a theology with a different origins such as uh, the pantheonistic ideas in the uh, uh, vedas and maharabhata if there are you find tech um ideals that mobilize for example uh, divine feminine power or spiritual principles that are plainly neglected in this um materialistic ideology well, I think the first very important gift of the Vedas is to recognize that the universe is divine. The smallest grass, the tiniest rivulet is an expression of the divine. And that's why it's not an accident. You know, we hold our rivers as sacred, except that now with industrialism and urbanization, we are polluting them. Um, our trees, our tulsi, the seeds. And can you imagine, this is so touching to me. When I go to the villages, women will do sacred ceremonies with indigenous seed. They will never use a hybrid seed for a sacred ceremony. For sacred ceremony with animals, they will only use the indigenous cows with the hum. They will never use a Jersey cow. It's quite amazing. No one told them. 
but they have that understanding of integrity and what the sacred means. It means to treat without violation, yeah? to hold the integrity. So we live in a divine universe and the energy of this universe is a divine feminine. Yeah? Shakti, we call her Shakti. And nature, Prakriti, is her first action. And that's why, even though we have, you know, we've said Maya, Maya as play, but not Maya as an illusion. Maya as play when you realize you're in a sacred universe. But the part that has always been a very, very powerful idea from the way Upanishad, it's from the Isha Upanishad. And this Upanishad, the first paragraph says, we live in a sacred universe, which is for the well-being of all. Enjoy her gifts without greed. Taking more than your share is theft. So they have defined as theft, taking more than your share, which is why India for 10,000 years lived a very high level of living without taking from anyone else, but it wasn't just as a civilization, each individual. And we never adopted anthropocentrism because we had all these antidotes that we are part of a web of life. We are part of one earth family. And I'm very, you know, it's that thinking. And where did I get it? I didn't begin with the texts, Russell. I began with my life in the villages where ordinary women were practicing this. So my gosh, they're saying this, let me go read a text. I went to the text following the practice of very ordinary people. And that's why when people say, oh, India is now a consumerist culture. I said, you're looking at the thin slice of consumerism. There's an ocean out there that is only surviving because they're spiritual beings. You know, millions had to go home on the day of the lockdown of the corona. You might have seen the march of the migrant workers. They could not have walked a thousand miles without a deep, deep resolve within them and a deep sense of their inner resources and, the, and not giving up hope. Otherwise they'd be committing suicide in the city. They did not commit suicide. They walked with babies in their arms. I think the other part that for me is extremely important because see part of the dualisms that have been created are the idea that there's spirituality and there's materialism, right? But India and her thinking and her Vedas and her Upanishads have constantly sacralized the material world. So because I work on food now over the last 36 years, not through choice, you know, I did my PhD on non-separability in quantum theory and it's 84 and Punjab and Bhopal that made me look at agriculture. Why were we practicing agriculture in a way that kills thousands in Bhopal and 30,000 people in Punjab? Where does this violence come from? And I wrote The Violence of the Green Revolution. And since then I've been going deeper and deeper into the food question. And I just want to share two or three of the really inspiring parts of a sacred relationship with food, which is what they want to break right now. It's been broken partly with industrialism, but now with the digitalization, they would like to end it forever. And that's where we can recover it. So the first is everything is food. Everything is food in the Vedas. And if you think of it ecologically, what is the nutrition cycle? 
but the movement of food. So everything is food. Yeah, an ecological cycle is the movement of food, and that's why I call food the currency of life. Second, the highest duty is to grow and give good food in abundance. It's your dharma. It has been put into a dharmic text, into the Mahabharata, into the Taitri uh, Upanishad. And the worst sin is to let someone go hungry in your neighborhood, not grow good food, and worse, serve bad food. So we've got to bring to the center of our everyday life, the rituals that make life sacred, our breath. You know, why is pranayam so important? Why is breath so important? Because breath is what connects us to the world. Water connects us to the world. Food connects us to the world. These are not fuels, you know? You know food as a fuel for a machine that's the, called the body. You know, this Cartesian construct has so outlived its time and the digital barons are trying to give it a little longer life, you know? They're putting their foot on the accelerator, say, go more Cartesian. And we have to say, no, go more spiritual, go more interconnected, go more celebratory through the abundance we can create. Excuse me, while I, because I actually found the conversation very, very um, moving in ways that I didn't, in ways that I didn't anticipate. This um, promotion of, um, uh, this re-sacralizing of the world, this promotion of rituals, it feels like that these, yes, these are some of the things I wanted to say, that do you feel, and is this even a kind of, is even this critique, um, if not reducted, reductive, somewhat abstract to a, um, a separate philosophical narrative, i.e. Um, do you feel that there is, you have a somewhat uh, Rousseauian regard for pre-colonial India, which surely must have been beset with its own forms of feudalism and the caste system, uh, for example, like, and if you feel that India that's only experienced the, this form of colonization relatively recently and is uh, suffering so radically, what hope is there for new world companies and uh, old nations, you know, old white European nations, um, if, if it is so deeply, if these ideas are so deeply embedded and the extraction of the sacred so um, or, uh, endemic and historic? Or do you feel that, like you said, our species is young and these cultural differences are therefore all quite recent and perhaps the reversal and reawakening and re-engaging of these sacred principles m might be possible at a kind of comparable, consistent and, um, um, you know, in tandem you know, like, is it possible that such different cultures with seemingly different challenges can have commensurate goals and can form alliances in support of one another? From what ideological template are we to draw? From what archetypes are we to in engage? And are there distinctions? And yes, do you, what do you say about my the earlier part of the question about like a pre-colonial India and uh, some of and the ideals and presumably contradictions that were present? Well, you know, the pre-colonial India and the pre-capitalist England share the same principles. 
of governance and accountability closest to where people are and are accountable to each other, the community, the commons. Now, there's a British history and there are many other histories. So there's a brilliant person with whom I interacted when he was alive and we are celebrating his centenary this year. His name is Dharampal. And he decided to look more closely at recent divisions, separations, impoverishments. And he had worked as a secretary for Gandhi. And he got married to a Britisher. So he went and spent years in the India office library, in the archives. And he's written five books on the basis of British rep reports about India when they were starting to come to here, come to India. The most important is the one called Science and Technology in India in the 18th century. So, you know, people are celebrating the vaccine right now. Smallpox vaccination, the variolation was taken from India, reported in the Royal Society. The vac vaccinations were evolved and then we were banned from variolating. Yeah. Steel making. I mean, you can just go through it's all records and he's not written a commentary. He's just reproduced the reports. So in those reports, there's one called The Speaking Tree, one book on education. And he's again working both on pre-colonial data as well as the British data, which is showing that there was universal education in every village. Women weren't left out, the girls went to school. The, those who are called the lower castes were actually the village craftspeople who were hired by the village, the blacksmith, the carpenter, and the community as a whole world to maintain the village tank, the village irrigation system, the village education system. And the figures are amazing. Five units used to leave the village community to go to distant authority. The minute the British came, 60 units of 100, 60% started to go straight to England. And when I talk about reclaiming the commons, I'm talking about reclaiming community, which also means constantly keeping in our minds that A, every division is a constructed division by power. And in India itself, so many movements against caste have come. My own parents chose the name Shiva as part of the anti-caste fight. Our Bhakti movement, Mirabai, all against discrimination. Guru Nanak, the Sikh religion, deeply against every form of casteism. And these are really the governing values. So that because we live in a world, a quantum world, we don't live in a Cartesian world. There's nothing fixed. Everything is waiting in potential, including the potential to change, the potential to undo harm, the potential to undo division. And one of the biggest thing I've noticed in recent years is just when corporate greed was taking over through globalization is when a negative identity politics was being given birth to. And earlier identity was, I do this, you know, I write, I teach, I'm a nurse, I'm a farmer. Then the identity became what I'm not. And Samuel Huntington wrote a whole book saying, you can only know who you are if you know who you hate. And globalization 
And this negative identity politics then has created a whole new range of new divisions. So what do we do to reclaim our common humanity? Remember what it means to be human. You know, don't begin with narrow, externally constructed Canolian identities. Begin with the lived life of a fulfilled human being on a beautiful earth. And those relationships are the secret. And those are in every culture, they're in every indigenous culture, they're in every pre-colonial culture, and they are being put in place in every post-colonial culture. Look at the experiments going on in new economies, local currencies, ecological agriculture, seed saving, I've seen this explode in my lifetime. This is growing everywhere, everywhere. So we need to just realize that we don't live in a frozen past and we are stuck in it. We live in a constantly evolving history and we've gone over, got over bad times with amazingly creative times and times of justice and times of solidarity and times of democracy. And then they've been undone again. And we just have to be ready now in a more international spirit to remember we are one humanity on one planet in rich diversity. Thank you. What is your personal spiritual practice, please? Do you uh, chant, pray, meditate? Well, you know, I'm from Dehradun, a beautiful part of the Himalaya. And um, when I was growing up and my parents were very spiritual, they took us to every guru. And those days there were real gurus, the Anand Mahimas and Swami Shivadan and our own guru, Sant Kripal Singh Ji. So he initiated, when we were little kids, he initiated us. And um, and that's my practice. What 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 is that practice, please? Just meditation. Vipassana, or is there chanting, or it's a noun. It's a noun. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's basically the different names of of the divine. Do you find it difficult to speak about God? plainly with Western people? Well, I don't talk about God ever, do I? I always talk about the divine. Because, you know, it's not a person. It's the pervasive um, energy. Yeah. Mm. And that's why we never locked God. We never locked God in cement. And they're trying to do it now, but we never locked God out. Yeah. We locked with the divine flows. I wonder, um, I feel like that whoever that was that appeared over on that side of the screen was a person that was saying, listen, you've got to wrap this up, Vandana Shiva. There's a limited amount of time. This is what I intuited that the person over there was saying. So uh, well, I just have a few. Uh, do you have time for me to ask you a few questions or do you need to resolve? If we can do it quickly because, you know, it's nine to five and my family is waiting to eat. Your family is waiting to eat. After everything you've said about food, after everything you've said about community, the problem now is in this moment, the pr I'm standing between you and family and food. I, I would just take this. I feel that um, it is very important to, as you say, sacralize once again our, our lives to uh, reintroduce rituals. It seems clear to me that you have a connection to a tradition that makes it plausible, possible and practicable for you in a way that is um, lived and apparent. I love too what you said about the sort of non-esoteric, easily 
accessible wisdom of villagers and people that you uh, lived with and experienced life with as a child. We live here sometimes in a world that a world that has been banalized, where the uh, deracination of tradition, where the annihilation of the sacred is complete, where all things are lacquered in sensuality, where sex has become pornography, where food has become greed. I wonder, uh, are there, um, can you just give me some ideas for what I should promote, what I should speak, what I should say in my forthcoming conversations with people? so that I get the download now before you eat? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it, because of this time we are living through the corona time and the lockdown time, and I think people are looking for a world that allows them to live free in a different context. And that's why what is deep freedom? in an interconnected world. You see, the whole liberal tradition was, what is freedom in an atomistic world? Which means the greedier get more freedom and, and the others lose everything they have. And that kind of atomistic freedom has created the world that we are living in. We can only have an interconnected freedom and our interconnected freedom has to begin by first recognizing the freedom of the other. And that's what for me, ecological movement will have to begin with recognizing the rights of Mother Earth and say, so what are your instructions, sacred Mother Earth? Then taking action from there. And that is the beginning of sacralizing our lives, including our daily lives of eating and walking and breathing and interacting. And another very, you know, one of our, my favorite goddesses is the goddess of time, Kali. Kal is time, Kali is the goddess who destroys, who destroys systems that need to be passed away, you know? It's always in, you know, India is so, with so full of imagination. Um, so I think a lot of people have got so locked into a linear thinking including history as linear. It's going this way and it'll only get worse. And a lot of people are in depression. A lot of people are in hopelessness. But all we have to realize is life is in cycles, nature works in cycles, and even time is a cycle. Thank you. Thank you, Vandana Shiva, for spending this time that particularly as it compromised your ability to have food with your family. I am very, very, very grateful to you. I hope that this is not the last time that we communicate. Thank you, Russell. Joy meeting you. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vandana Shiva. I'm rushing this now because Edward Snowden is going to be on the line in a second. Remember to follow me on social media. Remember to look at my YouTube post. We're talking about some deep stuff on there. Remember to tell your friends to listen to Under the Skin and sign up because we've got that great podcast, Above the Noise, meditation podcast, starting soon. Remember my YouTube side channel, Awaken with Russell Brand, available now. Subscribe to that. Now get, now listen. And sign up to my mailing list at <laughs> russellbrand.com. If you enjoyed the Vandana podcast, listen to Satish Kumar, you're racist, and Helena Norberg. <laughs> and Helena Norberg Hodge. Nice environment. It's fair enough. They are. It's they racist. are closer. Sorry. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. Now let's go and do Edward Snowden right now.
who will be coming up for you in two weeks.